0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, y'all are going to have to uh, uh, accept my apologies again. Um, uh, there has been a, another death in my congregation, and the, again, the funeral was, uh, the, the scheduling was beyond my control. So I'm again going to have to forego the second half of the class so I can be back in Statesville for the funeral. Um, my my mentor in the ministry says that... Uh, Death is seldom convenient, and that certainly is true in a practical sort of way when uh, you get into the ministry. So I I, I do apologize about the the shortening of the class today. Um, My intention is uh, next week during the lunch hour, obviously I'm not going to require you to stay because I'm not going to take you all's lunch, but I'm going to plan to stay until 1. Uh, If you have any sort of questions, we're going to have to move quickly today, so if we skip right over something that you wanted to hear more in depth, uh, and if, if you're able to stay next week during the lunch hour, uh, please do so, and I'll take questions and um, deal with stuff that we might have to pass over more quickly today. Uh, so, if you're if, and if you're able to stay next week, please plan to do so, and hopefully that'll make some amends for my having to uh, cut it short today. But anyway, uh, continuing with where we were with the mosaic covenant, um, we have been talking about how. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant uh, is bringing to greater and more clear fulfillment the three covenantal promises that had been made to Abram or to Abraham. Uh, we had dealt first with the promise of uh, a people also then with the promise of a land and then finally this morning, we want to see how the Mosaic Covenant is bringing a greater and a more clear fulfillment to the promise that Abram and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations and the the progression of this promise it seems to me gets at what is probably the most mis the most often misunderstood element of the mosaic covenant now the 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 pr- progression of this particular promise uh, you find a number of different places in, in the pentateuch but uh, one of the places where you find it is the passage where we had been looking last week in Exodus chapter nineteen uh, so we'll for the you know, sake of some Unity will stay there in Exodus chapter 19. And you get indications of the heightened fulfillment of this covenantal promise, particularly in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 19. Now, we mentioned those verses last week. And in them, in those verses, God had told Israel that if they would obey his voice, in other words, if they would obey his law, if they would render obedience to the law that they were about to hear from Sinai, Then, according to God, they would be a special treasure to him. He goes on to say that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, really, the the central of those three descriptions, and uh, the one that's the most helpful to focus on in particular, is the description of Israel as being a kingdom of priests. Uh, It's by being a kingdom of priests that they would be a holy nation. They would be set apart uh, as priests. Uh, They would be a special treasure in that way. Really, the the controlling identification there is of Israel as a kingdom of priests. But then that raises the question of exactly what is meant by Israel being a kingdom of priests. When we think of priesthood in the Old Testament, we think of, obviously, the Levitical priesthood. And it's self-evident that not all Israelites were of the Levitical priesthood. So in what sense is Israel to serve as a kingdom of priests? Well, to, to get at that, you have to consider what in the Scriptures a priest does. Uh, shorn of all the ceremony and the ritual and the uh, procedures that the Pentateuch details, what, what is a priest's central function? Uh, to what end does he engage in all of the ceremony that's described? Well, the, the fundamental function of a priest is to serve as an intermediary between God and man. Uh, a priest represents God to man, and he also brings man into God's presence. Uh, that's what a priest does. Uh, it's for uh, the purpose of do, of serving that dual function that the Levitical priesthood undertook all of the ceremony and the ritual and the stipulations uh, that you find detailed in the Scriptures. And it's in that broader sense, the sense of a priest uh, representing God to man and bringing man to God... It's in that sense that Israel was to serve as a kingdom of priests. But if that's what Israel is to do, then how do they do that in the Mosaic Covenant? How, through this covenant of Sinai, uh, how do they serve as priests? Well, they serve as priests in and through the law. Uh, it's through the law that Israel finds their priesthood. Now, you know, to, to come to terms with that, we need to realize exactly what the law is. Uh, We touched on that a little bit back when we discussed the covenant of works, but we didn't go into tremendous detail. Uh, It's probably helpful to refresh our memories a little bit at this point. Uh, Historically, within the Reformed tradition, uh, the law has been understood as being a description of the character of God. Uh, It describes God's holiness. Essentially, in the law... God is describing his own character in human terms. He's laying out the sorts of behaviors, the sorts of lifestyles that will result when his holiness is lived out in the midst of human society. Uh, For example, uh, we know from the scriptures that God is a God of unflinching truth. Uh, In the New Testament, Titus 1 verse 2 says very clearly that God cannot lie. It's something that we know from the scriptures. And when God's people live out that truthfulness in their own lives, it means that they, among other things, don't bear false witness against their neighbors. The ninth commandment. Uh, We know that God is a God of justice and of life. And when that justice and life is lived out by His people, that means that they don't take life unjustly. They don't murder. Therefore, the sixth commandment. Uh, God is a God of unwavering faithfulness. And when His people live out that faithfulness, that means that they don't commit adultery, thereby breaking their vows. Uh, in other words, the seventh commandment. You, you get the idea. The uh, The law uh, takes God's holy, righteous character and describes how that character is lived out in the midst of human society. Uh, it's that sort of understanding of the law uh, that undergirds the traditional threefold division uh, of the uses of the law. Uh, if y'all are doubtless are familiar with that from Calvin and his uh, theological descendants uh, the the threefold use of the law, and particularly the first and the third use. Uh, the first use of the law being that it reveals our sin. Obviously when the, the law describes the sort of life that should be lived if God's holiness is lived out in this world, then we're able with the law to hold up a description of what our life ought to be. Next to it we hold up what our lives are, and there's a glaring light cast on our sin. We can't Neglect, we can't overlook our sin. It's made very clear by the law. Uh, the third use of the law uh, being that the the law instructs us in righteousness; that it serves as a uh, like uh, the pedagogical use, um, teaching us how to live. Uh, likewise, finds its roots in this understanding of the law as a description of God's character. Uh, when uh, when one is given a new heart, when he's Uh, made to desire God's righteousness then the law shows him how to live Um, you know when we're in our sin even uh, after our uh, redemption we still are men of uh, broken hearts and minds uh, left to our own devices we quite literally wouldn't know what righteousness looked like Uh, we wouldn't know what the right thing to do was but in the law God tells us he tells us how to live, because he's describing his character as it would be lived out in our lives. And so in, a, in a very full sort of sense, the law reveals the holiness of God. It describes how his holiness is lived out in the midst of human society. And what that means, among many other things, is that when God's people render obedience to his law, they actually manifest his holiness in the midst of the world. It's striking to me that when the scriptures describe the, the result of God's people being obedient to God's law, the result is always described as a display of God's own character. Uh, obedience to the law brings about a, an enactment and a reflection of God's own holiness. Now you see that in the Old Testament, uh, for example in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 19, verse 2. It appears several other times in the, uh, particularly in Leviticus. But 19, in chapter 19, verse 2 is just one example. And uh, there, Moses or God is giving Moses legal instructions that Moses is in turn to convey to the Israelites. And in the midst of those instructions, God says, "You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." So, by obeying the law, the Israelites would be holy. They would display a holiness. And that holiness that was being displayed by obedience to the law is analogous to God's own holiness. Uh, the law described God's holiness in human terms, and by rendering obedience to the law, God's people would manifest that holiness to a watching world. Uh, you get the same sort of emphasis in the New Testament. Uh, particularly striking, it seems to me, in... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, uh, Jesus puts a, a pretty fine head on it. Uh, at that point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just has finished his six antitheses, uh, the six instances where he goes and shows how the law uh, applies as much to our hearts as it does to anything else, how the law is a uh, an internal spiritual law. And after Christ has called for this rigorous heart obedience among his people, he then says in Matthew chapter five, chapter 5, verse 48, He says, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so again, you have the same sort of dynamic that you see back in Leviticus, chapter 19. Uh, according to Jesus there in Matthew 5, obedience to the law, when it's applied to the heart, makes one perfect. And that perfection that is displayed by obedience is analogous to the perfection of the Father himself. So once again, the law is describing the holiness of God in human terms so that God's people uh, are given direction in how to live in such a way that others see the glory of God. Uh, That's the the uniform witness of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, When God's people render obedience to his law, they manifest a holiness that's analogous to God's own holiness. And, needless to say, that holiness is seen by the surrounding world. Now, given that fact, uh, given that uh, brief sketch of an understanding of the law, uh, you you can start to get a sense of why God says what He says in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. uh, Why He says that if Israel obeys His law, there will be a kingdom of priests to Him. Very clearly, if Israel obeys the law, they will be living out God's holiness in the middle of a world that's watching them. Uh, If if Israel obeys the law, uh, they will fulfill this priestly role. On the one hand, they'll show the entire world what God is like. Uh, The world will look at God's people and see a reflection of His holiness, uh, therefore representing God to man. Uh, They'll show the world what God is like. And also they will serve to draw men to God. There will be a light in the midst of darkness. There will be life in the midst of death. There will be truth in the midst of lies. they will be visibly different from the world around them, thereby being used by God to draw His people to Himself. Uh, Through obedience to the law, Israel will serve a priestly function. Uh, They'll represent God to man, and they will uh, bring men into God's presence. And it's uh, in that regard in that sense in which uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant is bringing to greater fulfillment and greater fruition the covenant promise of being a blessing to all the nations and doing it specifically through obedience to the law, uh, it's in that regard, it seems to me, uh, that we need to understand Exodus chapter 24. Uh, much is made of Exodus chapter 24. Y'all probably have picked up on that in some of the reading. Uh, most often... Exodus chapter 24 is cited by uh, Klein and his uh, and like-minded men as being a a clear indication that the Mosaic Covenant is a law covenant. In Exodus chapter 24, uh, the first part of the chapter, Israel swears the covenant oath. Uh, They have blood sprinkled on them, uh, seen as being representative of the self-maledictory oath, like what we found in Genesis 15. Uh, And that's the... Seen as being kind of the the definitive uh, fact that establishes the Mosaic covenant as a law covenant. Uh, The the people are swearing the oath and they're taking uh, this kind of representative form of the self maledictory oath. And certainly there's truth in that. In um, Hebrews chapter 9, for instance, in verses 16 through 22, uh, says very plainly that what we find in Exodus 24 is what it appears to be. It's the solemnization of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, it, is, it certainly is that. But it's also, it seems to me, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, uh, it's also notable that there's only one other place in all of the extensive, detailed regulation of the Old Testament, there's only one other place where a ceremony takes place in which blood is applied to men. And the only other place where we find the application of blood to people in this sort of a ceremony is in Exodus chapter 29, verses 19 and 20. And there, it occurs in the consecration of priests. Uh, specifically in that instance, it's uh, Aaron and his sons uh, being consecrated to the priesthood. Now in that instance, blood is you know, it's not sprinkled on them. It's applied in certain places. But it's uh, you know, the only other instance of blood being applied to men. And so it seems to me that in Exodus 24, uh, while it certainly is the solemnization of the Mosaic Covenant, it also simultaneously is giving a very strong indication that the purpose of that covenant is that Israel should be a priest to all the nations. Uh, The entire nation, in some sense, is being consecrated as priests. And that, I think, helps to orient us to what is implied and what is entailed in their obedience to the law. Because there in Exodus chapter 24, both in verse 3 and then again in verse 7, Israel agrees to obey the law of God. Uh, And it's based on that engagement to obedience that the whole ceremony is taking place. It's because of their engagement to obedience that they are being consecrated as priests. That seems to me to be the force of the ceremony that's recorded in the 24th chapter of Exodus. Uh, Covenantal blood is being applied, and that blood also has overtones of a priestly consecration. Um, The nation, by their pledge of obedience, is being set apart uh, as priests to all the world. Uh, So it's in that sense, it seems to me, that the, the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations is coming to greater and heightened fulfillment. Uh, His descendants uh, will bless all of the nations through being priests to them, a nation of priests. And that national priesthood, if you want to put it that way, is realized through obedience to the law, a law that's given not to save, uh, but to uh, reflect God's holiness amidst His people, showing them their sin, leading them in uh, righteousness. Uh, That's what's occurring in the Mosaic Covenant. So kind of as a, to sum up the last little bit from last week and then what we've seen the last couple of minutes, uh, in the Mosaic Covenant and through the Mosaic Covenant, the fullness of God's covenantal promises in Genesis 12, the promises he made to Abram, uh, the fullness of those promises are being forwarded. They're being advanced through the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, there is now a nationalized people of God who are given instructions on how to live in the land in such a way that all the nations will behold God's glory. Uh, The covenantal promises first announced uh, with such clarity to Abraham are receiving clear advancement, uh, a continuous sort of development. But there's also, there's several more, but we'll just look at one more. One more uh, advancement in the covenant of grace that we find here in the Mosaic Covenant. As you move from the Abrahamic Covenant into the Mosaic Covenant, there's a further advancement that is very prominent. And that is that in the Mosaic Covenant, sin and atonement are placed in the very forefront of God's covenantal relationship with His people. Sin and atonement receive a prominence in the Mosaic Covenant that they had not known previously. Now, of course... Fundamental to that is something that we mentioned a minute ago but passed over pretty quickly. Uh, we talked a minute ago about how the law reveals the character of God and how that fits specifically, we said a couple minutes ago, into the third use of the law, how it instructs God's people and how to live. But the law that reveals God's character also has the first use, as it's called. Uh, the law also shows Israel their sin. Uh, The law shows Israel how wicked they are, uh, how wicked they are in their relation to God, in their relation to each other. Uh, The law, uh, by describing what a righteous life ought to look like, very clearly discloses the sin of Israel. It brings condemnation upon them. And it's in that context and in that particular use of the law that the Mosaic Covenant brings such a profound advancement in the understanding of atonement and sin uh, within the covenant. Now certainly, uh, God's people prior to the Mosaic Covenant have recognized the need for atonement. They've recognized the need specifically for sacrifice. Uh, we've seen that really throughout uh, the scriptures up to, that, up to this point. Uh, even as far as back as uh, Genesis chapter 4, you see Abel bringing an offering to God. Uh, Noah had a sacrifice after the flood. Abraham offered many sacrifices very very clearly uh, sacrifice and the, the clear connotations that sacrifice carries of atonement have been present prior to the Mosaic covenant it 's not as if it began with Moses. But in the Mosaic covenant, the practice of sacrifice receives a detailed clarification that is utterly unlike anything that it 's seen before. Uh, sacrifice is put in its proper context. Uh, it's made very clear that sacrifice, the shedding of blood, brings atonement for sin. Uh, I find it noteworthy that uh, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, where we you find the, the Decalogue being given, uh, in verses 1 through 17, you get the law, you get the, the Decalogue there. Then in verses 18 through 21... You read of the people's terrified reaction to this direct speaking of God. Uh, the people cry out for Moses to be their intermediary. But then, starting in verse 22, you know, the very next thing that occurs you know, God has spoken, the people are terrified, and then the very next thing that occurs is what? They are regulations concerning the altar. Uh, how the Israelites are to build the altar, how they're to approach the altar. There's very general descriptions, nothing in Nothing near the detail that we'll see later. But it's noteworthy, I think, that here God describes the altar, the place where atonement would be offered. Um, The revelation of the law, even from the beginning, is intended to lead to atonement. Uh, The revelation of the law is intended to lead to the revelation of atonement. Uh, That's a necessary connection within the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, even from the very first. Uh, in this same covenant in which God is exposing the sin of His people with the righteousness of His law, He's also giving them explicit and clear and, I think you have to say, gracious instructions on how that sin that had been revealed was to be taken away. Uh, the intricate, elaborate system that you get under Moses really drives home, you know, on the one hand, because of its overwhelming, ponderous size. And on the other hand, because of the minutia of its detail, uh, the revelation that you get really drives home that sin demanded atonement and that the God of the covenant would provide a way for atonement to be found. Uh, In the Mosaic Covenant, God is giving His people a law to find their sin, a a sacrificial system to wash that sin away, and then the law, again, to guide them in seeking after Him, um, that seems to be the uh, the picture that you get of the Mosaic Covenant in its uh, in the Pentateuch. So, in uh, in a very uh, short sort of scope, that seems to me to be uh, the the presentation of the Mosaic Covenant. On the one hand, again as kind of review, on the one hand, it's Uh, The covenant stands in marked continuity with the covenant of grace, as that covenant had been most recently embodied with Abraham. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant precipitates the Mosaic covenant, it drives the Mosaic covenant, and it receives further clarification in the Mosaic covenant. And so while the Mosaic covenant stands in marked continuity with what was done with Abraham, it also advances the covenant of grace. Uh, It brings greater advancement to the covenant promises, it brings sin and atonement to the forefront of God's covenant relationship. Uh, the covenant with Moses and with Israel through Moses uh, very clearly stands uh, joined to the Abrahamic covenant. And certainly it, the Mosaic covenant brought complications, you might say, uh, but it doubtlessly was an advancement. Uh, in Robertson's book, he has an illustration with a child and a I think he calls him a gangly teenager, it's an interesting and I think a pretty pretty good analogy. Uh, the, under the Mosaic Covenant, uh, things might have gotten messier, uh, but they did advance. And it seems to me that if, among other things, and probably most of all, uh, under the Mosaic Covenant, God's people were that much more prepared for Christ. Uh, they had been shown their sin very clearly. They had been shown their need for forgiveness. And they had been shown that the God of the Covenant would provide a way of atonement. Um, After Sinai, uh, God's people could see much more clearly uh, the dim outlines of an atoning Messiah. Uh, God is moving His covenant forward. Uh, That, like I say, seems to be the presentation of the Mosaic Covenant in uh, the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch. But as we said last time, in discussions of the Mosaic Covenant... It's what the New Testament says about the Mosaic Covenant that is as contentious as what the Old Testament says about the Mosaic Covenant, Um, particularly when it comes to the law. And we've said how the law very much is emblematic and representative of the entire covenant, and discussions of the law occur many times in the New Testament. In fact, it seems as if a lot of times today, if you do much reading on uh, issues of the Mosaic Law uh, the Mosaic Covenant. Um, most of the critical exegetical sorts of points from the Old Testament are pretty much assumed, and then it's the passages out of the New Testament uh, that are given the real attention. Uh, now, certainly, that you know there, the Old, uh, the New Testament shapes how we understand the Old Testament, no doubt, but it seems that oftentimes the focus is so much on the New Testament uh, that our our anchor in the Old Testament, our anchor of understanding the law uh, that ought to at least have something to do with the Old Testament uh, becomes uh, lost and we, we go a little bit astray in our understanding of what the law is. Um, it seems to me that when we come to passages in the New Testament that deal with the law or deal with Moses or the uh, you know what it however it's phrased in the particular passage that you're considering. Now when we come to New Testament treatments of the Mo, of the Mosaic Covenant, um there are, it seems to me, six different principles that we need to bear in mind. Uh, these six principles are extremely self evident. It's almost laughable to number them as principles. Um, but time and again it seems to me at least that the combination of these principles uh, is oftentimes what leads people astray. So we'll run through those six principles um, and see, see what you think. Now, the first principle that's important to remember when we consider New Testament treatments of the law is that in New Testament times, the Mosaic covenant represented the clearest and the most comprehensive revelation of the covenant of grace. Uh, certainly, there were other revelations of the covenant of grace. You had the Davidic covenant, uh, the new covenant that was uh, described in the prophets. But even still, the Mosaic covenant was the preeminent uh, revelation of the covenant of grace. Uh, the Davidic covenant essentially took the contours of the Mosaic covenant and applied it to one particular family, kind of to a, a head under the Davidic king. Uh, the tendency of that actually was to heighten the importance of the Mosaic covenant Uh, rather than to vitiate the importance of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, So you you find the Davidic Covenant not drawing attention away from Moses, but actually in a lot of ways focusing attention on Moses. Uh, And with the New Covenant that the prophets had described, uh, the Covenant was described in such shadowy terms, uh, it lacked the clarity that we had under Moses, and also, probably more importantly, the New Covenant was very self-consciously described as something uh, that was to come. It was a forward-looking prophecy, whereas the Mosaic Covenant uh, very self-consciously spoke to the condition of God's people as they were. Uh, So when you get to the New Testament period, it is still, although you have the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant as important developments, uh, it's still the Mosaic Covenant uh, that represents the most comprehensive disclosure of the covenant of grace. that's the the first principle you have to bear in mind. The second principle that we need to bear in mind when we come to the New Testament is that while the Mosaic covenant doubtlessly was the clearest and the most comprehensive revelation of the covenant of grace prior to the coming of Christ, it paled in comparison with the glory of Christ and the new covenant in Him. Uh, The earlier stage of revelation and development was, by definition, inferior to the latter stage of revelation. Uh, It's pretty self-evident, it seems to me. Uh, The example that comes to mind for me, and I recognize it's silly to compare the revelation of God's covenantal purposes to the NCAA basketball tournament, but the the example that comes to mind, I guess some people might not think it's silly, but... um, the thing that, that's the example that comes to mind for me. I mean, if you think about it, at the end of the first weekend of the tournament, the Sweet 16 is everything. I mean, if you're in the Sweet 16, that's the pinnacle you've arrived. You know, if you're a team that hasn't been there too often, you have T-shirts made up. Um, I mean, that's, it's the thing to be in the Sweet 16. But at the end of the second weekend, when the 16 teams have been whittled down to four teams, the Sweet 16 looks pretty lame. I mean, if you're when the Final Four has been announced, to have been in the Sweet Sixteen but not the Final Four uh, doesn't mean a tremendous amount. You don't see anybody after the second weekend of the tournament, if their team was in the Sweet Sixteen but not the Final Four, you don't see anybody walking around saying, "Well, we were in the Sweet Sixteen. I mean, it's pretty irrelevant at that point because you've moved on to the Final Four. Uh, the, the development or the progression of what's, uh, the, the progression that's occurred has made what was glorious appear pretty paltry. Now, that's you know, the case, I think, pretty clearly with college basketball in the tournament. And the same principle applies to the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, when the Mosaic Covenant was the defining stage of the revelation of God's purposes, it was glorious. Um, however, when revelation moved on, it became rather paltry. That doesn't mean it was insignificant in its time. You have to have the Sweet Sixteen to get to the final four, um, but it does mean that when, progression, when the revelation has progressed, what came before uh, loses its luster. And in fact, is a backward step. Uh, that doesn't diminish the glory of the previous revelation. It simply reminds you uh, that what was one time glorious, when things have progressed, becomes rather paltry. Now, that's the second principle I think we need to bear in mind. First at the Mosaic Covenant was the most comprehensive revelation of the covenant in the New Testament era, or the men writing in the New Testament era. And secondly, that while it was the best at that time, uh, it was far outstripped by what was done in Christ. Now, the the third principle that we need to bear in mind is that because of the, the clarity and the prominence of the Mosaic Covenant, whenever the New Testament authors refer back to a previous period in redemptive history, they almost invariably refer to the Mosaic Covenant. And that was the uh, kind of the defining uh, view of God's covenant work prior to Christ. Also, I think it's important to note there that uh, when we consider how often the New Testament takes Moses and the Mosaic economy as indicative of what God had been doing and particularly when they set it in contrast to what God is doing in Christ, it's important to note that the distinctive emphasis of the Mosaic Covenant very beautifully and perfectly highlights the distinctive emphases of the New Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, one of the distinctive features and one of the great progressions of the Mosaic Covenant was that God's law had been given a concrete, externalized form. Uh, we talked about that last week, how if you're held to expectations that you don't know, it can be extremely frustrating. But in the Mosaic Covenant, God made His holy standard known. It was put in an external form that could be chiseled on stone tablets. Um, it was given a, a concrete form. But in the New Covenant, that same law is written into the hearts of men, uh, and the the sort of raw externalization of the Mosaic Covenant makes it the perfect full for the internal writing of the law under the New Covenant. And that doesn't mean that the Mosaic Covenant was bad. It means that the New Covenant is more glorious. Uh, the, the particular emphases of the Mosaic Covenant serve wonderfully in God's all-wise providence to bring out the glories of the New Covenant. So you oftentimes see the New Testament authors referring to the Mosaic Covenant because it is the clearest revelation to date and because the revelation that we have there so clearly highlights what's wonderful about the New Covenant. That's the third principle that we need to bear in mind. Uh, The fourth principle is that uh, much of the New Testament was written in polemical contexts. Uh, it was written to correct false teachings, uh, to combat error. Uh, much of the New Testament was written in a polemical context. However, little of the New Testament makes that explicit at every point. You know, for example, in the book of Galatians, you know, Galatians starts out in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul makes it incredibly clear that he's writing to a church that is turning to embrace what he calls a different gospel in verse 6. Paul makes no bones about the fact that he is writing in polemic. He's refuting a false gospel. That's the purpose of his writing. But Paul doesn't reiterate that at the beginning of every verse of Galatians, nor at the beginning of every chapter. Uh, The entire letter is written in polemic against a Judaizing vision of the law, but Paul doesn't reiterate that Uh, after every sentence. It's important to remember, even when we're considering a passage, in this case out of Galatians, that doesn't necessarily, in that self-contained unit, bring up uh, Judaizing errors. It's important to remember that it is written in a particular and often polemical context. Uh, That's the the fourth principle about the New Testament use and treatment of the law. Uh, The fifth principle... Is that one of the one of the areas of the most ferocious debate within the early church was the issue of the law uh, the abiding role of the law uh, the use of the law under Christ uh, you see that even within uh, the historical records in the New Testament uh, the beginning about chapter ten of Acts uh, when Peter has his vision of the clean and unclean I guess in that vision all clean food and then the outpouring of the Spirit on Cornelius and his family Uh, there in Acts 10 up through the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You see the early church very clearly wrestling uh, with the extension of the gospel to Gentiles, uh, what that means for the use of the law, uh, how the law is to be viewed in the early church. You get the same sense throughout the epistles, uh, particularly with some of the uh, false teachings that were being combated. It's very clear that the early church was dealing in detail with the law, how it was to be understood, how it was to be applied. Um, That was something that was treated in great depth. So when you have, back from principle four, when you have much of the New Testament being written in polemical contexts, the overriding majority of those polemical contexts have to do with the understanding of the law. Uh, That's the fifth principle. The sixth principle, this is the last one, the sixth principle is that the Judaism of the New Testament era, uh, the Judaism of Jesus' day and the day of the apostles, was horribly misguided, to say the least. Uh, It was a distortion of the faith of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus addressed this time and again uh, in all of his uh, encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. Again and again, Christ is uh, dealing with the fact that the popular Judaism of the day, if you can call it that, was misguided. Uh, the book of Acts also plain, paints that pretty vividly. Uh, you see time and again the gospel being rejected by the Jews, yet being accepted by the Gentiles. Uh, very clearly the, the Judaism of the New Testament era was misguided. Uh, speaking in a, an institutional sort of sense, the heirs of Moses, so to speak, were wrong. Uh, they had distorted Moses, and they had fallen into error so those uh, are six principles, that, as I say, they probably all seem fairly self evident, um, but I think that when they 're combined uh, and when they 're combined and misunderstood, great error can result when they 're combined and understood, I think it can help us to navigate what can be confusing portions of the New Testament treatment of the law. Um, Um, yeah, so I think if, if we keep those um, those principles in view, uh, it will serve us well. Um, let me think. Um, I think, in, in essence, ma- many of the errors that you meet in the New Testament, or many of the misunderstandings or misapprehensions of the Mosaic Covenant that come through the New Testament that you r- find uh, written these days, seems to me, is attributable to one of two errors. Uh, either the uh, you know, the, the academic writing today uh, will look at a passage of the New Testament in which Paul appears to be critiquing the law, but in actuality what he's doing is critiquing a false use of the law, a false teaching about the law that's being forwarded at the time. Uh, Robertson has a pretty good section on that sort of thing particularly in regard to Galatians uh, in his book, I think around page 180, somewhere in there, um, how it's important to remember the context in which the Scriptures are being written so that we end up not attributing to the Old Testament what was just a false view in the early church. I think a lot of times error results from that misapprehension uh, of New Testament passages. Now, the other error into which people seem to fall fairly often is that a passage will be considered in the New Testament in which the Old Testament law uh, is being critiqued. And it's not, it's not a false view that's being critiqued, but rather the law itself. But it's the law as something that's being held up as an alternative to Christ. Uh, there, there's nothing wrong with the law, but there is something wrong with taking the law and resting in it rather than in Christ. Uh, The law is good, but to remain in the law when Christ has come uh, is wrong. Back to the basketball illustration, the the Sweet 16 is great, but once you've gone to the final four, to want to stay in the Sweet 16 is a retrograde motion. Uh, It's wrong. Um, Oftentimes, when the New Testament is treating uh, the... Not the when the New Testament is looking at the law in the sense of its earlier stage of revelation, the fact that it's not as clear as the New Testament, it's not as glorious as the New Testament, uh, that's taken uh, by some as indicating the uh, the failure of the law, or the the shortcomings of the law, or the fact that it's a it's antithetical to the gospel because it's based on works rather than on grace when really all that's being addressed is the fact that it's an earlier progression, or an earlier uh, point in God's disclosure of His covenant. So I think if we keep these six principles that I have enumerated, y'all might come up with other ones, uh, I think it helps us avoid some of those errors. What was the first of those uh, common errors in interpretation That the... the a passage out of the New Testament will be taken that's critiquing a false view of the law and it will be read as if it's a critique of the law as it would be rightly understood. Um, as, as an example, when when Paul writes about, when he writes in Galatians about the law not being intended to save, um, the Old Testament never said the law was intended to save. But... Um, Paul is writing against the uh, the Judaizing errors of the day that said that in, you know, in addition to Christ you had to be circumcised you had to keep the law. Um, he he was refuting error, not refuting the old covenant, uh, the Old Testament use of the law properly understood. Now you know, that that gets can get murky because like I say most of the Judaism of the day was horribly uh, distorted anyway. Uh, so there were, there were few who are forwarding a right understanding of the Old Covenant. Um, But in in the New Testament's critiques, oftentimes what's being done is a critique of a false view, of which there were plenty to choose from at the time, and there still are, uh, rather than a critique of a right biblical understanding of the Old Covenant. I and mean, it does seem like in the Sermon on Mount other actual New Testament documents that first century Judaism had gone awry, but these guys are arguing that it happened. Mm-hmm. So, where would you sort of guide us, for you know, anything that addresses the not, not necessarily addressing the sort of new perspective idea, but you know, how to help get up to speed on what first century Jews really did believe as the nature of justification? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, well, I, I do think that you know that fundamentally, the it's the the New Testament scriptures that I think give the lie to a lot of the New Perspective, and like you said, specifically places like the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it seems that the the judia the the Judaistic view of the law being described there is not what the New Perspective guys say, uh, It's much more of the historical understanding. Uh, but uh, as far as Secondary sorts of works. Um, what, to, I forget the exact name, but uh, Guy Waters' book on uh, justification and the new perspective on Paul, I think is the proper name of it, um, is incredibly thorough. If you've read Guy Waters on either that or the Federal Vision, he's, he's incredibly thorough and, and helpful. Uh, that's a, a good place to start, I would say. Um, I know... Bill Barkley and Ligan Duncan have just put out a book, I think called Gospel Clarity maybe, on new perspective uh issues. I haven't read it yet. I have it It does not his question specifically. It doesn't. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, I, I haven't read it yet, but figured it'd be good, but maybe not moving on this particular issue. Yeah. Um if if I if I were going to start somewhere, I would start with Guy Waters. Um, some some of the ones on some of the uh, critical views of N.T. Wright that are often recommended, I haven't found particularly coherent. <laughs> um, so I, so if if I, if I were going to give one recommendation off the top of my head, I'd say Guy Waters. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.